You may be seated. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, our topic this morning is an uncomfortable one. It's one that is sobering and has weighed heavy on me as I prepared for it. And this was illustrated in my own study and preparation. I have this wonderful book on my shelf called The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. And I often pull it off my shelf as a reference in studying certain topics. And it's a book that has uh, kind of a, a reference book. It has articles on major themes throughout Scripture. So if I'm studying a sermon or a theme and I know that I want to see how does this theme progress or has it developed through the entirety of Scripture, what does Scripture have to say about it? I often pull that book off my shelf and just see the article, which covers, you know, cover to cover, what does Scripture have to say about a topic. So surprise, when I pulled it off my shelf and I realized... And I tried to turn to the S and find slavery, and it wasn't there. And I tried to turn back to the B, bond servant, it wasn't there. And I realized this was just not in the book. I was surprised because as I've done my study and, and looked through this, even on a surface level, I realized slavery or servanthood is actually a huge theme throughout Scripture. And I don't know why, uh, I don't know if this is why this topic was left out of the book, but it just struck me that this isn't one we want to talk about. It's not one that's comfortable for us, particularly given our national history. It's why when you read in your New Testament, often you will see the word servant or bondservant translated instead of slave, even though that Greek word doulos is the same word for slave, servant, bondservant. Oftentimes, in your New Testament, it will be translated in English as servant, so as to avoid the connotation of slavery and to make a distinction between what is going on in the New Testament world, between what we think of when we think of slavery. Even our English translations will want to avoid that connection. It's an uncomfortable topic. It was uncomfortable particularly for us because of our history. We when we think of slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade in which America participated. It was a slavery based on skin color. Black people were largely considered inferior to whites based on their skin color and were considered worthy of slavery. And this institution of slavery that we're familiar with, that's in our background, was built upon the stealing and trafficking of people. This happened in Africa in the 16th through 19th centuries. Slave hunters rounded up slaves from other people groups, sold them to slave traders, who then brought them to the New World to work, often in excruciating and difficult labor. And once sold into slavery in the New World, they essentially had no hope of release. They were captive in perpetuity. Families were often broken up, and they were treated cruelly and punished harshly. It was a system endorsed both by our founding fathers and many Christian leaders. One of the most gifted evangelists of the era, George Whitfield, was given a slave as a birthday present. Jonathan Edwards often criticized the slave trade in the form of slavery in the U.S. He was the first pastor in his area to welcome black people into full membership in his church, yet he also owned slaves and did not seek to dismantle the practice entirely. So our national history is stained by the sin of slavery. And our forefathers and evangelical leaders of the past have a checkered at best history with this. And many in our past even used the Bible to endorse the slavery found in the transatlantic slave trade. So we have to ask, does the Bible condone slavery? 
does the Bible condone slavery? We have to ask this because if the Bible does, if the Bible condones slavery as we understand it and know it and have experienced it in our American past, if it does, then we have a really hard time seeing how the Bible could be good. If the Bible is for that kind of slavery, can we be for the Bible? It's a question we're going to try and wrestle with this morning and take an honest look at what the Bible says about slavery. We won't be able to say everything, but hopefully we can say some things and bring some clarity. We're going to look at three big topics, slavery in the Old Testament, slavery in the New Testament, and then finally slavery in Christ. First, turn to Exodus 21. Exodus 21, uh, at the beginning of your Bibles, Genesis to the Exodus, Exodus 21, 1 through 11, here is kind of one of the primary passages as laws concerning slavery in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 1 through 11. Before I read that, I want to give you some historical context for slavery in the Old Testament. It is helpful to keep in mind that in the ancient Near East, slavery was almost an assumed part of every culture. Some practiced it more harshly, but essentially all cultures had some system of slavery, particularly for captives of war. The first story of slavery in the Old Testament has to do with the girl named Hagar, who was a servant of Abraham, who got promoted when they were looking to have a child, and she was promoted to concubine her wife, and then Sarah treated her harshly and then cast her out. And what happens when Hagar is cast out? God comes to her personally and cares for her. It's the first time in the Old Testament somebody uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And there's a special moment where she's given a promise. We see from the very beginning, God cares for all kinds of people, high and low, and even slaves who are cast out. God's own people would be formed through the low status of slavery. They would become enslaved in Egypt after their father Joseph was enslaved in Egypt. All of Israel being enslaved and captive in Egypt, which is why Exodus 21 comes where it does. What is Exodus 20 all about? Ten Commandments. Then almost immediately after the big Ten Commandments that summarize the whole law for Israel, very quickly, Exodus 21, the law talks about slavery. And that's actually unusual. A lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures and nations had laws for slavery. Some didn't. They practiced it but didn't have laws around it. But Israel not only had laws for slavery, it put them front and center at the beginning of their law book. Why? Because slavery is so much of what shaped them, what they experienced in Egypt. And though there are laws around slavery, it is not necessarily God saying that he approves of the practice. And this is careful to keep in mind. Just because there are laws in the law book regulating slavery, it does not mean that in God's ideal world there will be slavery. And that's important, and we'll see that later. But just because there are laws around it doesn't mean that, that is God's ideal. For example, think about divorce. There are laws around divorce, but it is not God's ideal that divorce would happen. But Jesus says in Matthew 19.8, when the Pharisees are debating about divorce, Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
The idea being, because we are in a sinful and broken and cruel world, this is going to happen, so God gives certain laws allowing this. That doesn't necessarily mean he condones it in his ideal. It's because of sin that these laws are in place. In fact, if there were no sin, if the world was not broken, if the world was not a cruel and harsh place, and if we did not have sinful hearts, there would be no need for laws. If we all drove in a safe and responsible way, there would be no speed limits. And yet here we are. The laws are there precisely because the system and people in it are broken. So slavery did exist in the ancient world. And Israel is not unique in that. But its laws were, I would contend, particularly gracious to those enslaved. I'm going to read Exodus 21, 1 through 4. It says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. These are the laws for Israel as they purchased Hebrew slaves. How would somebody become a slave or be in that position? This would be in the position of destitution and ruin. If somebody in Israel had no hope, no future, no, no finances, no wealth, no standing, then they might sell themselves into slavery so that they could survive. So we might look at this, and we don't, we don't want to necessarily condone slavery. We might look at this and condemn it, but understand, it was this or starvation and death, and those were the alternatives for somebody in this position. There was no other alternative. So they would go into slavery to work back into financial health so they could live on their own, and laws were in place to protect the one who was enslaved and sold into slavery. First, notice that the slave was to be released after six years. So the idea was to be sold into slavery and be taken care of in that, in that service, and then after six years, they were to be released. Deuteronomy 15, 13 through 15 even says, And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. So if Hebrews were to have Hebrew slaves, they were to keep them for six years, then send them out and then send them out liberally uh, with furnishing. They were to be given the 40 acres and a mule that the slaves in the U.S. never got. And notice that there are paths to freedom in this system, unlike American slavery. They were to be released after 60 years, and then every 50 years was to be the Jubilee year, when all slaves were to be released. Additionally, the family of the slave could buy the freedom of the slave and redeem them. Redemption, where somebody is bought back into freedom. So there are multiple paths to freedom and release. And when they were released, they were to go as they came in. If they came married, the master did not get to keep his wife. They were to leave married. If they came in single, they would leave single. But there's one condition that's talked about here. If you come in single and then the master gives you a wife, then 
the master keeps the wife and the kids. And that sounds really barbaric and harsh to us. I think, this is how I interpret this, but I, I think what's going on here is this is actually a protection for generous masters. Why would somebody come into slavery? They were poor and destitute. What is required in that time to have a wife? A lot of money for a bride price. Where would that money come from? The master. So as a way of protecting the master from having slaves come in, rob him essentially of money that would be paid to bride prices, then leave without any return. Harsh, it sounds to us. But it was a way of protecting all parties involved. And if the slave wanted to stay with his family and loved his master, he could do that. And now it's the ceremony that's talked about where it says they would go to God, as the text says. That's a way of saying go to the court or go before the judges or go to the tabernacle, the place where God rules, i.e., it's a covenantal ceremony, like a wedding, stand before God and all these witnesses, and before all those witnesses, they would um, commit themselves to their masters. The point is it had to be public, had to be recognized. Masters could not keep and commit their slaves to them privately. It had to be done before people, so there were witnesses, and it was all above board, and everybody knew the situation. Those were laws for male slaves. What about female Hebrew slaves? Verses 7 through 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Again, it's difficult to understand this in our current context. How could somebody sell their daughter into slavery? I would never do that. There are lots of things I would never do in our context. How many of you would take your children, hand them off to strangers to be shipped to a different land, never to see them again? We'd all say, well, I'd never do that. Yet I saw this several weeks ago on the news as Ukrainians were sending their children away. And I did not think to myself, what cruel parents. I thought to myself, what a heartbreaking, tragic, difficult decision to have to make. Out of sacrificial love that your kids may survive to send them away. Right? The context determines everything. Why would somebody sell their daughter to somebody else in slavery? In this context in Israel, you as a family can no longer support your kids, you're destitute, you're ruined. So the choice is starvation or find a place where your daughter will survive. And that's the context. And in that place, the young girl would be in a different home without her family's protection. So there were laws to make sure she was protected. And that's the intent of the laws. 
to ensure the protection of the vulnerable person. First rule is that she was not to be released as males were. Why? Because unlike males, she would have no way to support and protect herself. So this was a law against abandonment. You cannot take somebody in and then abandon them. Second, there is a protection that the master did not... If the master wanted to get rid of her because she was displeasing to him, and we might guess what that means. But if that was the case, he could not send her out. and He could not send her to a foreign people to make profit off of her. There was to be no trafficking of people. Again, this is unlike American slavery. She could not be sold off to another people for profit of of the master. What does verse 8 say? She has to be cared for. She could be bought back and redeemed, but could not be sent out or sold since he has broken faith with her. Do you see where the fault is in this? Not with the girl, but with the master who broke faith and did not protect her as he said he would. So don't send her out, don't send her to a foreign people, send her back home, that she may be redeemed. Third, if she was to be designated for marriage to the son, this is kind of a form of arranged marriage. If a girl was bought to be raised in the house and then to marry the son of the master, she was to be treated as a daughter. So this is the don't treat her like Cinderella or a stepdaughter. Treat her as your own. She used to have all the benefits of being your own daughter. And it says if the man takes another wife, whether it be the master or the son, we're not sure, or whether by another that means an additional wife or an alternate or a different one than it was intended. If that's the case and he wants to get rid of her, he's not allowed to do that. The girl's to be taken care of. She's not to be denied her food, her clothing, or marital rights which is a way of saying intimacy, that she might bear children and have a future and have an heir. Her safety and future were to be secured. And if the man didn't do this, she was free to go without cost, which is a way of saying she could go back to her family and they didn't have to pay a redemption price if he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. All these laws are there to protect a vulnerable person in a bad situation, in a fallen world. It's a harsher world and culture than we live in, and it's hard to wrap our heads around, but that's the point and the intent of the laws there. And there are other protections throughout the Old Testament for slaves. Israel had laws to govern them in this. So Exodus 23.9 called Israel not to oppress others because they knew what it was like to be oppressed in Egypt. Leviticus 25, 43, and 46 say that Israelites could not rule over each other harshly out of fear for God who ruled them. Exodus 21, 26 says that if a slave was injured by the master, the slave was to be set free. There is to be no physical mistreatment of a slave. Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16 says asylum was to be given to slaves freeing foreign masters. If somebody was fleeing slavery, Israel was to be a place of asylum for them. Next is 21.16, just a few verses after this section we just looked at. is especially important. It says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. This law alone, if it was listened to, would have ended American slavery. Anyone who participated in kidnapping and man-stealing, 
and owning a person who was kidnapped and stole and sold, all those people, the Old Testament law says, are to be put to death. Because God cared about the lowest social status people. And God called Israel to follow his good and gracious laws perfectly. Did they? From your knowledge of the Old Testament, how do you think Israel fared in following God's gracious laws for their slaves? Jeremiah 34 actually tells us, verses 8 through 22 tell us, or bring a condemnation against Israel for not releasing their slaves as they were supposed to. Listen to what Jeremiah 34, 17 says about this people who were to release their slaves and said to God they would, but then went back in their word. Jeremiah 34, 17 brings God's judgment upon Israel. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and a famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. That is God's word for Israel if they did not release those who were enslaved to them. That will for freedom, which is God's ultimate will for his people, freedom from service and bond service to other men, is reflected in the New Testament. So that's what I'll look at next. Slavery in the New Testament. Turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Again, there's more in the New Testament that we could possibly talk about, but just want to land on a couple places to see what the New Testament has to say about slavery. And as you turn to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, I just want to give a little context, because Roman slavery was really different from slavery in the ancient Near East and different than slavery we understand from the transatlantic slave trade. Roman slavery was a different beast altogether. Roman slavery could be both horrifically brutal and it could also lead to a really good life, and everything in between. It is estimated that in Italy, in Rome, about one-third of the people were slaves, and about one-fifth were slaves throughout the Roman Empire. So a good percentage of people lived as slaves in Rome and in the Roman Empire, and you would not be able to differentiate just by looking at people. So slavery was not based on race or skin color, but it was based on status and social status, and you could not tell that just by looking at somebody. The slaves themselves generally entered it in the Roman Empire in one of two categories. There were rural and agricultural slaves who worked in the mines and the fields, and then there were urban administrative slaves. The urban slaves had it much better. They had a variety of jobs from shopkeepers to house administrators to doctors. They could be wealthy, they could and did even own other slaves. There were opportunities for release in Roman slavery. Normal length of service was somewhere between 10 to 20 years. Many slaves were released in their 30s. Masters could choose to release their slaves and to show that they were actually good masters and for their reputation, so they were um, benevolent and kind and good with their property. However, the life of a slave was still a subservient one. The quality of life was fully dependent on the master. Slavery could be brutal, especially for rural slaves who labored outside. Punishment was harsh. Slaves ran away often and were punished for it. The most um, famous or infamous slave revolt happened in 71 BC. The Third Servile War, which is featured in the the famous Spartacus, was part of that. Huge slave revolt and battle that resulted in the crucifixion of 6,000 slaves. 
Slaves didn't have personal rights. They didn't have standing in court. They were seen as personal property, and there was little dignity in it. That was the world of the New Testament. And the context in which the New Testament speaks, the New Testament didn't create this context, but speaks in the middle of it. And in fact, Jesus speaks in the middle of it. About 13 of his parables feature servants or slaves. It's just the world they were living in. And that brings us to Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And what we'll find in the New Testament is that there is no one verse that in and of itself ends the entire practice of slavery, but there's a lot of scripture that tells people how to live as godly people in this world that they lived in, especially now they're in Christ. So Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So here Paul speaks to both servants, bondservants, slaves, and masters. To the slaves who have the harder role, he says, obey your masters. To make masters happy, to, to make masters money, no, obey them out of obedience to God, be pleasing to God. Their obedience to their masters on earth is a reflection of their obedience to their master in heaven. You may not be rewarded in this life for it, but there's another life to come, and that will be your reward. You will find your reward there. When you finally meet Jesus face to face, there you will be rewarded for your obedience. So Paul calls slaves and servants, who are, again, about one-fifth or one-third, somewhere in there, of the whole population, all you people, serve as if you're serving God, and you will be rewarded for it. What about masters? Paul says to them, be godly in your role. Treat your slaves with dignity. Stop threatening them. So no beating, no abuse of those under you. Why? Because you have a master too. Remember that Jesus Christ, that God, is your judge. And in judgment, there will be no differentiation or partiality based on whether you are slave or free. All will be judged before God in equity. So the New Testament gives regulation on how slaves and masters are to live. And all of them are called to live in a godly life. And yet, we don't see, and this is where the troubling part is, right? We don't see any verse that says, the whole system of slavery is evil and must be burned to the ground. And we don't see that express call in the New Testament. And that's where we might have our struggles. Why isn't that there? Why doesn't the New Testament say more to disrupt this whole system of slavery? A couple things can be said. One, again, just like in the Old Testament, the practice of man-stealing and slaving was condemned in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, 9-10 says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, 
men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the New Testament absolutely does condemn what happened in the American slave trade. Enslaving, man-stealing, that kidnapping and buying and selling for profit, all that is condemned. Also, the reality in the Roman Empire is that slavery is such a part of the social fabric for so many cultures and for so long that it would have been unthinkable to try and end it. It would be like saying we've got to dismantle capitalism and commerce. And some people say, yeah, but how? We're so steeped in that system, there's no real way to do that. It's impractical. It couldn't even be thought of. So the best we could do is how to live wholly in the midst of that. Beyond that, there were means of emancipation and release in Roman slavery. So the focus is on finding freedom in the midst of it. And again, when people tried to end the whole structure, like that revolt in the Third Servile War, it didn't go well. 6,000 were crucified. Also, remember that Christians didn't have a lot of social capital and power in this time. The call to bring down the system wouldn't have made sense. Christians didn't have the power to do that. And ultimately, the focus of Scripture is not to call us to create heaven on earth. And that's a controversial statement, but I think you know what I mean by it. We are not called to, I don't think, nor do we have the power to, in and of ourselves, transform every society so that we have heaven here on earth. That's ultimately Jesus' job, and he's going to do it. Our role is to make change for the better wherever we are, wherever we exist, to exert a godly cultural presence in the world in which we live. And more than that, to call people to freedom in Christ. And that is the main priority and agenda of the New Testament. Knowing that Jesus is coming back, he is going to make everything right. Before that happens, the main priority and agenda of the New Testament is to call everybody to submit to him and find freedom in him. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 20-23. We'll end there, the passage we read in the beginning. The first order of Scripture is to save lives eternally in Christ, not necessarily to change temporary structures. And yet, having said all that, if we look at what the New Testament says about slavery, particularly in 1 Corinthians 7 verse, you will see that it just starts to undermine the whole system. It doesn't full out abolish Roman slavery, but it sows the seeds for slavery's destruction and upheaval. 1 Corinthians 7, 20-23 says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So here Paul is talking to Christians who exist in the time of the Roman Empire in that context, and he says, live as you were called. However you exist, wherever you are, whatever your station is, whatever your, your social status is, if Christ calls you while you're there, then don't make it your primary agenda in life to find another place to be. Just live underneath Christ in that place. That's your first priority. So if you're a slave, then live and continue as a slave. But notice what he says. And if you have the opportunity for freedom, go for it, because that's better. So if you have the opportunity for social advancement, if you have the opportunity in this life and in this world to make your physical surrounding and your living life better, go for it, by all means. Paul's not going to stop you from that. Scripture's not going to stop you from that. But it is going to say, your first priority ought to be living according to Christ wherever you are. That is the main agenda. Why? Because there's this underlying reality for both slaves and masters that Paul wants us all to remember. Verse 22. Here Paul has a word for slave and free. says, For he who is called... And the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. And you see what Paul is doing there? If you're called as a slave, remember, you're free. That is the most important thing. You have been freed from the greatest slavery. You were born a slave to sin and death. You were born enslaved to these things, to your lust, to your passions, to your addictions, to fear of men. To all the sins that enslave you, Paul says, the most important thing about you, slave, is you are free in Jesus Christ. And Christ has come and set you free. And that you must remember, even if you live in physical chains, you are free man or woman. And then Paul says, and if you are a master, remember you're also a slave. While you are free, you are a slave of Jesus Christ. It's this whole different way of looking at the whole system. And that is behind what counsel Paul gives to Philemon. So years ago, we went through the book of Philemon. Do you remember what happens in Philemon, the counsel that Paul gives to his friend Philemon and what he's supposed to do about his runaway slave Onesimus? Onesimus ran away from Philemon, the slave master, and Onesimus happened to meet up somewhere with Paul, and they became friends, and then Onesimus was converted to Christ. And what does Paul do? He writes back to Philemon and says, here's what I want you to do, brother. Accept this man as your brother in Jesus Christ. And that changes the whole system, the whole dynamic. Accept him not as your servant, but as your brother. Why? Because in Christ there is no such thing as slave or free. In Christ we are all equal and one with one another. And that dismantles the whole system. 
If you, Philemon, can see your servant as your brother in Christ and treat him as such, that will disrupt the whole thing. And then what encouragement does Paul leave him with? In the book of Philemon, verse 21, he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And that is a subtle hint to Philemon saying, I know you're going to do even more than what I ask, which is a way of subtly saying, let him go. It's, Paul's very subtle. I'm not going to command you to. There's no law that says you have to. But if you're going to truly follow Christ, then let your brother free. And let him be a free person. Because he is free in Christ, and you are both slaves of your master Jesus. And this is the shocking thing, I think, about slavery in the New Testament, of all of it, is that slavery was a status thing. To be a slave was to be in an undignified position, to have no freedom, to have somebody over you. And yet, all throughout the New Testament, we're called to be slaves of Christ. And in fact, the New Testament authors take up that label when they write. What do they write? Read in your epistles as they begin. Verse 1. What will Paul say? Paul, a servant of God. When you read that, read, don't read servant, read slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And James and Peter do the same thing in their letters. They introduce themselves by saying, this is who I am. I am a servant and a slave. That is my identity I'm taking on as somebody who follows Jesus Christ. I am signing up for slavery. It's not just that I, every once in a while, voluntarily bend the knee a little bit or submit myself. It is a recognition that Jesus Christ owns me that I am his possession and belong to him because he bought me with a price. God purchased me through the blood of his son, so I belong to him. And that is the status, the identity that Christians take on in the New Testament. And you say, well, it's so demeaning to call yourself a slave. Well, it was not demeaning to Jesus. Who is Jesus? If not a servant. The mind-blowing thing of it all. Jesus, the God of heaven, took on the likeness of a man and became what? Philippians 2.7 He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, doulos, slave, being born in the likeness of men. He became a servant to us. He showed it when he took on the slave's attire and washed the feet of the disciples, becoming lowly, coming not to be served, but to be a servant. And this is the ideal for Christians. Free from sin, Satan, death, freed where it really matters and enslaved to Jesus our Lord and servant and that is the goal forever that we will be servants of him in fact in the new creation in heaven new earth Revelation 22.3 says we will still be servants of him this is what life is like when all is perfect and made new. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is your goal, and this is your destiny as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be eternally a slave to your one master, Jesus Christ, free from everything else. That's the end goal. 
that's the end point of all of Scripture. We will no longer have any earthly masters, only one perfect master in heaven, free from every bondage but bondage to Jesus. So, now we can finally answer our question. Having said all that, does the Bible condone slavery? No. Not as we've seen it and experienced it here on earth. It condemns man-stealing and enslaving as a great sin. It gives moral agency and dignity to personhood and personhood to slaves. It calls slaves to honor their masters and masters to act with honor. It calls masters to see their slaves as brothers. It gets rid of the slave-free divide and sees all as equal in Christ. It enables all to be free from spiritual bondage and it calls all to be slaves of Christ. That's what the New Testament does. So it does not condone slavery and it sets the table and sows the seeds for the disruption of slavery as we know it. Which is why all of the greatest abolitionists were Christian. Frederick Douglass, William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner's Truth, all followers of Jesus Christ because they knew that in Christ we have one master. Thanks for sticking with me. I just want to give you one more thought. The miracle that it is that there is such a thing as the black church in the U.S. Consider this for a moment. That so many slaves took on faith in Christ either when they arrived here or they maintain the faith in Christ they may have already had when they came. And historically, we know both are true. But some came over believing already. And it is a miracle that some came to believe in Christ and some maintained their faith in Christ in the midst of a wicked and cruel system where people who claim to profess Christ beat them. How did that happen? Well, they were told they were of lower value and lower worth. They were told they were uh, less than human and they heard cruelty and wickedness around them. And yet they opened up scriptures or heard Jesus Christ and they found there was one who personally loved them and cared for them just like he cared for Hagar. That he knew them. He knew their trials. And he offered them the true freedom that matters eternally and showed them one in Jesus Christ who was a servant like they were. The gospel frees people, condemns the slavery we knew. And more than anything, condemns our slavery to every dark power, every sinful inclination, frees us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for sticking with me a little longer than normal. Or you might say this is just always this long, but... Uh, <laughs> let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, in the, the gospel that actually sets us as um, wherever we're called, male or female, slave or free, whatever ethnicity, whatever background, whatever culture, wherever we are, we are called in Jesus Christ and all have access to him and all can be saved by him. Then in him we have the equal standing and worth before your throne. All of us freed from sin and then 
called to glorious service to Jesus, and that is a call that can go out anywhere to anyone. We thank you for that. We pray that it would go out through this church, Lord. And that as it does that, it would transform us, the way they would transform New Testament people, and the way they treated masters and slaves and treated one another. Uh, the gospel is meant to transform that relationship. May it transform our relationships so that we would not look at each other as um, greater or less than or treat anyone else with cruelty, or treat anyone else as less than an image bearer, but that we would see all people as those who are valued and loved by God, and people who can eternally live with Christ and respond to him. So Lord, may the gospel shape um, our perspective completely. And may we know the freedom of being in our one Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.